First reading today is from Psalm 19, uh, starting with verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. We have a second reading um, from 2 Timothy 3, starting with verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Well, good morning and welcome. Thanks for actually being here this morning. I'm Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here at City Light. So if you are tuning in online, it's great to have you with us. And also thanks to everyone who are actually coming and being here with us in the building. We, um, we weren't quite sure what to do. Our options were like to run a kid's service or to run like just a regular service or to run online. So we just kind of button mashed and did all three. And we'll see how that works out for us over the next few weeks. Uh, but we'll let you know when we can actually get back into the high school and, um, and just stay tuned for updates there. Um, but whether it's your 50th time at church or your first time, so good to have you with us for the Doubt series. Um, it's a real blessing to be able to go through this and to wrestle with some, some significant questions that for you or for people who you know might be a real obstacle to having faith. And today we're opening the question, can I believe when there are so many problems with the Bible? And just like Jacob said before, our hope in this series is not to cover off every single possible issue in half an hour. That would involve me, I talk, I talk fast anyway, or so I've been told, that would involve me talking very quickly to, to the level of being quite unpleasant. And so it is really just to open the door and start the conversation, because oftentimes with doubt, you can just feel stuck and like what's the next step or the next thing to think or talk about. So our hope is that it just gets the ball moving uh, in regards to that. And so uh, today, we're going to be looking at the question, how can I believe when there are so many problems in the Bible? Because for many people, the Bible is a problem or is riddled with problems. I remember one encounter I had with this when I was working in, I'll say I'm working, I was working in hospitality I'd love to say it was a hatted restaurant. In truth, it was Red Rooster, the Carl Sanderlands of fast food chains. And, uh, and I was working there for a while, and I was working with a guy who um, just had a mad energy about him. He had this really kind of like um, reformed ex-con sort of vibe. He, just, he was very philosophical, but he was a big unit. And so it was just, he just had interesting things to say. And he would wax lyrical on things like population control and things like that, all while we're frying chicken and microwaving stuff, right? So it was quite it was an interesting context for, uh, for philosophizing about things. And I remember one time he got into a bit of a stash with our manager, and he had said to her, how can you not believe in God? And he had a big like Celtic cross tattoo here. So he's pointing the finger with this giant cross saying, you know, how can you not believe in God? And, um, but she wasn't backing down on it, and she said... Have you ever heard of the game called, and I'm just quoting here, you don't call it this these days, but she said, have you ever heard of the game called Chinese Whispers? And that was just kind of a microphone drop moment. She just said that and then turned around and went into the office. 
And, uh, and I, think I, I think I caught the gist of the argument that it's this, right? How could you possibly base your life on a document or a book that has been passed down that many times throughout history, that it's gone through so many different baton changes, what you have in your hands now could not possibly be the original. If in a kid's game, you can't pass a sentence from one end of the group to the next without it morphing almost unrecognizably, how on earth could you have a document passed down over 2,000 years and longer and think this is reliable enough to actually base my life on it? And that's the problem that I want to call the reliability problem. I think that's probably the first problem when we talk about the problems with the Bible. But let's say that that one isn't surmountable. The second one is what you might call the moral problem. And I remember, again, having a conversation when I was in high school with a friend and talking to him about issues of faith. I wasn't actually a believer at the time, but my family was, so I kind of felt like I needed to stand up for the Christian faith or something. And I remember him saying to me, you know what? My dad is a better man than God. And that was an interesting comment because his family had their issues and things at the time, but I think in his mind, he thought as flawed as my dad is, he is more moral than God. I think that's not a bad summary of how some people feel about the Bible. When they open it up, they, they feel like there is a moral vision that's kind of actually a bit regressive, that it's something that we have actually advanced beyond to the point where it might be fair or reasonable to say that we're kind of more moral than the God we see in the pages of this book, the Bible. A sense that if there were a moral court to adjudicate, that God actually might come up short to our modern vision of morality. And in that sense, the Bible represents a problem. How could I submit my life to something that I kind of feel is actually a little bit less moral than I am? But even if you could get past that second problem, you come up against the third problem, which I'm going to call the inspiration problem. The issue that when people open the scriptures, sometimes they just find it somewhere on a scale from dull to just actually completely understandable or inscrutable. Something where when you pick it up, you're like, I don't really get what I'm reading here. And I don't understand what the point of this is. And so with all of those three combined, what you kind of have is, a, I guess, a fatal case for the Bible. That when you have the reliability problem stacked on the moral problem, stacked on the inspiration problem, you have a book here that you really just wouldn't live your life according to. And more than that, probably the biggest problem with it is that the Bible claims to be reliable, morally good and wisdom-giving, and inspiring. Look what the Bible says about itself as the Word of God. In 1 Timothy 3.16, as, Jacob, uh, sorry, as Kathleen read out to us before, All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The claim is that the Bible is actually God's Word breathed out by God that it's actually his word written down through his people. And then in Psalm 17, it says that it's not just a document, but actually that it's morally good and desirable. It's beautiful. In Psalm 19, it says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony, which is another way of saying the word, the Bible, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and altogether righteous. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. 
The claim in the Bible is that it's breathed out by God, that it's reliable, that it contains truth, and even capital T, truth, absolute truth, but that it's not just boring truth, but this is truth that you could base your life upon, that it's morally enriching, that it gives wisdom even to the simple, that it's good. And on top of that, that it's to be desired more than gold or any financial gain or anything we could possibly possess and more desirable even than honey. And so if the Bible is not these things, then the Bible is not what it claims to be and therefore falls down. And so I want to make the case this morning that the Bible is reliable, that it's morally good, and that it is inspiring. But to just shape how we're going to you know, track across that in kind of around 30 minutes, I'm gonna, I hope I'm reading the room and the internet, not the whole internet, but just whoever's watching rightly. And then I'm going to give, I'm going to apportion a little less time to the reliability question because my, my vibe in speaking to people is that that's kind of a pass to play issue. That it's like, yep, if the, if the scriptures are reliable, that's good. But then we really need to work out those two bigger questions. So I'm hoping I'm reading that right. But if I'm not, there's plenty of chance to follow up on this as well because there's lots and lots of material on the reliability of scripture. So I'm just making a bit of a call there. I hope I land it right. If not, I don't get a second shot at this, so we'll see how we go. But, um, but diving into it, the first one is a matter of kind of pass to play, that if the Bible doesn't pass the reliability text, if what, we're, uh, test, if, if what we're reading is not what was actually written down originally, then the game's over before it starts. So the question is, is it reliable? Well, some, of course, would argue that it's absolutely not. In the mid-2000s, a book came out called Misquoting Jesus. And in this book, Bart Ehrman who's a critical scholar, made the claim that there are over 400,000 mistakes in the Bible. That with the manuscripts we have kind of put together, if you add up all of the discrepancies, you hit a figure of around 400,000, which is a problem because there's only around 184,000 words in the New Testament. So that's about two mistakes per word. So if that's true, that's pretty extraordinary. But what is probably pretty extraordinary is that it is true. There are 400,000 discrepancies just in the New Testament. Now, while that sounds like a very scandalous headline, like many scandalous kind of gotcha journalism type headlines, when you mine under it, the reality of it is actually not that extraordinary. Firstly, when you find out that 70% of those 400,000 are just spelling mistakes, that are easily rectifiable and have no impact on the meaning of a text, that kind of dulls the headline down a little bit. But not only that, for the next sort of 29%, a lot of them are really discrepancies like in one gospel, John might be spelled with two N's, but scandalously in another one, it's spelled with one. Now again, those don't have any significant impact on the meaning of the text. And that accounts for 99% of these 400,000 discrepancies. But there is a 1% where there are differences in manuscripts that we have in Greek of the New Testament. That's how we get the New Testament. There are 1% where there would be what you would call meaningful differences. That you have two possible interpretations from equally valid manuscripts. And one of the interpretations goes this way and the other goes the other way. However all of them really fall into the category of non-essential doctrines. Let me give you an example. In 1 John 1, 1.4, New Testament scholars debate, according to the manuscripts that we have, as to whether you would read it like this. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. That's option one. Or 
and we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. Now, those are different meanings and they have different landings, but that's the level of discrepancy that we're dealing with in the New Testament. And in fact, Bud Ehrman, who wrote this book, when he was interviewed about it, and uh, there's a copy of it in one of the earlier manuscripts of his book, writes that essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. But of course, that wouldn't make for a very good title for a book. And so it's right there in the back. But the truth is that what we have across almost 6,000 original language copies of the New Testament is we have an incredible coherence that there are no major Christian doctrines that are in any way threatened by any of these discrepancies and that what instead you have is a clear reverberation of a, of a sound and pretty reliable teaching to the point where you can be confident that what we are reading now is what first century readers were reading then. That it passes the reliability test. But even if that's the case, you might say, well, great. Will be for the Christians. We've got, we've got here an ancient text that is, by far and away, particularly for its time, by far and away we have the largest amount of supporting evidence for of any, of any ancient document. But you say, that's great, but it really belongs to another time or another era. And not only that, when you look at the morality of the Bible, you can look at it and go, this is, it might have been cutting edge. It might, it's like rollerblades. It might have been cutting edge for its time, but right now it just looks a little bit out of place. And so you can open the Bible and think, yeah, it's a, it's a bit like finding an old vintage textbook in a high school where it's got some information that's still true, but a lot of stuff that's also been debunked since. And so it's an interesting kind of vintage text. But again, it's not something you'd build your life on. So I want to ask, is that true? Is it the case that the Bible is not really, for a modern context, morally good? Well, the truth is that many of the, the deep moral assumptions that we, that we hold to dearly, and that we consider ourselves to build our moral framework upon, were not innate to humanity, but actually came to us through the Bible. So just to give you an example of a few of the things, universal human rights is an idea that came to Western culture through the Bible. Brian Tierney of Cornell University wrote a volume uh, showing that the idea of hu universal human rights and the equality of every individual was not developed by the philosophies of the Enlightenment, but through canon lawyers in the 12th century, based on the teaching of Genesis and the idea that all of humanity was made in the image of God and therefore has basic and inalienable human rights. The belief that there is fundamental human rights that governments need to uphold and protect came to us through the Scriptures. But it's not just human rights, it's also sexual ethics. Kyle Harper of the University of Oklahoma has shown that, and again, not a believer, just a Roman historian, has shown that the belief that every person has the right to their own body, to his or her own body, and therefore that sex must be completely consensual, was, not, was a startling new concept that came into the Roman world through Christianity and eventually triumphed that by the 6th century that became the predominant understanding of sexual ethics, whereas it was very much fringe in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was sexually permissive, but only for people who had power and status. The idea that everyone had the right to their own body was not at all an innate or shared view. But it's not just sexual ethics and human rights, also the value of protecting the weak. Tom Holland, and we touched on this a little bit last week, who wrote a volume called Dominion, again, not a Christian, 
It's the historian laying out the origins of our Western understanding. He says uh, in his volume that uh, the last pagan emperor of Rome, Julian, sought to revive paganism in the face of a surging and growing Christianity. But pagans despised the poor and the weak. And while Christians poured themselves out for the sick and the poor and the orphans and abandoned infants. And as a result, the masses flocked to the church. And because of that, the idea, the value of looking after the poor and the weak and the strong using power to serve came through the Bible. Not only that, it wasn't just protecting the weak and sexual ethics and human rights, but also progress and hope. The belief that in the future we might get better and be more just and more equal as a society was not a common view. That most views of history were either kind of a bit nihilistic, what's the point, things will just happen, do what you can do, or that it was random, that the gods were petty and feuding and we were just collateral damage, or that history was in cycles. Things would get better, but then they get worse, but ultimately in the end we're just going round and round in a circle. The belief that things might be getting better or heading towards an end point came from the story of the scriptures, that God is doing something through history and bringing it to a particular end point. These were not things that were innate to our worldview. And so in short, when we critique the morality of the Bible, we end up using the tools and the moral framework that we got from the Bible in order to do it. You can think of it a little bit in this way. There's a poor joke, and I don't know who's first to be attributed with it, but whatever. Uh, th and this is how it goes. Uh, Voltaire, who was kind of an Enlightenment philosopher, French guy, so easy target for the bad guy in a joke, um, was, has challenged God to build a world. And the challenge is that Voltaire says to God, I can build a world better than you can. And so God says, challenge accepted, and starts gathering together some dirt, and Voltaire kind of wanders over and then grabs a bit of dirt, and God says, oh, you get your own dirt. Top gag. But you get the idea of it, right? You get the idea. Much of the modern moral Western framework uses the dirt of the Bible. That it was a framework that wasn't innate, to humanity, but came to us through the scriptures. So much of what we hold to be dear and important in a moral society was given to us through the Bible. That accords with its claim that it's morally good. But of course, the follow-up question to that would be, if that really were the case, wouldn't every culture just be able to pick up the Bible and read it and think, wow, this is the best thing ever. This is the right way to live. Why is it then that when we pick it up, there are so many things that don't sit well with us or even that even clash or confront our culture or our sensibilities? Well, if the Bible really is from God and it really didn't originate with any one people group or culture, that it came from outside human history and entered into human history, then it would actually make sense that it should clash with every single culture on different points. Probably the easiest way to illustrate it is through an illustration that G.K. Chesterton used, a journalist in the turn of the 20th century. He gave the illustration of the most hated man in the world. He said, imagine you heard the report that there was a person that was universally hated. And you go to one town and they say, yeah, we hate that guy. He's too tall. But then you go to the next town and they say, oh, we hate that guy. He's so short. Then you go to the next town, they say he's too fat. You go to another town, they say he's too thin. You go to one town, they say he's too hairy. Another says he's too hairless. And you keep going through towns, and you keep getting the same pattern of all these contradicting sort of charges. He said, at that point, you could only come up with two conclusions. Either this person was the most 
unbelievably awful, somehow contradictory, at the same time too tall, too short, all these things, uh, and just the most universally misshapen person that had ever been. That would be one conclusion. The other one would be that they are in fact the perfect human. And when they go to a town that has a preference or prejudice towards height, they seem too short. When they go to a town that has a preference or prejudice for shortness, he's too tall, and so on and so on and so on. You get the drift. The truth is that the Bible is disbelieved in different cultures for opposite reasons. In many Eastern cultures, the God of the Bible is too lenient and forgiving. In the Western cultures, God is too judgmental and too high on moral accountability. In the Middle East, the Bible is too sexually liberal. In the West, it's too sexually restrictive. In some cultures, the Bible is too earthly and natural. In Western cultures, it's too spiritual and supernatural. If the Bible really is what it claims to be from God and not from any particular culture, it would make sense that it's disbelieved for opposite reasons. That if the Bible really was the perfect word of God, then it would be the case that it would go around and show up the imperfections in each culture that it engages with. And there is no spiritual religious text that has crossed more cultural boundaries than the Bible. And so even though we're just scratching the surface on, on stuff, isn't there at least enough to open the door to the question that the Bible might actually be what it claims to be? That actually as you stack these things up together, the reliability, the number of manuscripts, and then the moral goodness of the Bible, as well as its clash points with each culture, that this seems to fit with, a, with something that claims to be from God. But even if you could pass through those two, the third one kind of is a bit of a clutch one. Like if it really was those couple of things, if it was actually morally good and, and worldview shaping as it claims to be and maybe historically is, and if it really was that reliable, why is it just so dull? And the first response to that would be, I, don't, I, I think it's uncontroversial to say that there are many portions of Scripture that are not dull. That there are many stories that resonate with our culture that actually read as easily as a novel. Stories about battles or triumphs or human frailty and weakness that we, just, we connect with actually pretty easily. There are psalms and poems that, though they were written so long ago, represent the human frame. There's philosophy and wisdom in there that connects with us pretty much immediately. There are phrases that even maybe have come off your tongue, not knowing that they came from Scripture, like pride comes before a fall, practice what you preach, or even the idea that you should treat others the way that you want to be treated. It's fair to say that there's a lot of Scripture that actually is quite immediately engaging and, and easy to understand. But it's also fair to say there are parts of Scripture, even long tracts of Scripture, that are very difficult to read. That as you sit in them, feel very disorienting or hard to understand. But I think there may be something in this in terms of our, our modern way of reading. Nicholas Carr wrote a book called In the Shallows, How the Internet is Changing the Way We Think, Read and Remember. And he wrote this book because he himself has been an avid reader for all of his life. But he found in kind of the, probably around his midlife, having spent a lot of time in knowledge work, working on smart devices and computers, that he found it increasingly difficult to read. And not in terms of just understanding the words, but just sitting there and concentrating. He found that when he sat down with a book, he just felt almost a bit agitated, like he needed more stimulation, an impetus to kind of flick the page. 
And as he did some research into it, what he noticed was that the more time we spend on devices like laptops where we have multiple windows open, or as we do in many modern contexts, where you are watching something on TV while trying to do some work on your laptop, while scrolling socials and texting on the smartphone, what, it, you, what your mind does is like, okay, that's what we're doing now. We need to get good at switching tasks. And so your mind gets in the habit and gets better at switching from one thing to another. But that's the opposite skill to reading something and contemplating it deeply. And the problem is there are many parts of Scripture as a deep text as it claims to be that require study and patience and deep understanding. And so it may be the case that some Scripture reads dull not because there's something wrong with the Scriptures but because the way we even read or engage with things has changed. We're getting so used to multiple, immediately dopamine-rewarding stimuli that we are losing the art to just sit and read something that requires deep thinking. I think it testifies to me of the richness of Scripture that it's simple enough that kids can get it and love it, that they can understand a story like David and Goliath and get right into it, that there are quick and pithy things that immediately hit us and we understand, but that there are other things that you need to spend deep amounts of time thinking over. It makes sense that it's a book so simple that kids can grasp it and yet so deep that scholars can dedicate their lives to spilling ink over it and not get to the bottom of it. That I think the difficulty issue in terms of reading the Scriptures probably testifies to the fact that this may be the very Word of God rather than not. And, but even having traveled through all of that, if you were to hold to the case that it's reliable and morally good and inspiring, I also wanted to finish by just saying personally why for me, I believe the Scriptures are the Word of God. I think it's the case that if you have a worldview that's sound, that over time it should become more true rather than less, and your worldview should explain more things rather than less things. Does that you sort of track with where I'm going with that? If you have a worldview that really doesn't work, I think over time the problems with it will just accumulate. There'll be more and more things that aren't explained by it that actually lead you to the point where you might actually deconstruct it and try and find something preferable. But I think if a worldview is true, it explains more and more of your experience and the reality around you. And my experience as a, as a follower of Jesus for now, tw it's been 20 years since I was in high school. 20 years. But my experience of following Jesus over 20 years is that the Bible seems more true to me now than less. And I just want to list off a few things for you just quickly as to why that is for me. I think for me, in reading the Scriptures, it's incredible that there's almost 40 contributing authors and yet there seems to be one single author bringing together a single coherent story that culminates in the person of Jesus. That there are things written hundreds of years before Jesus about his life that if he were merely human, he could not have controlled, contrived historically in order to bring about and to accord into a single story. For me, though the Bible is complex, there is a simplicity and cleanness to the line of the story from beginning to end that testifies to the fact to me that there is a single author. Not only that, there is a pattern of authors recording things against their own interests. Those who get a, are able to control history by recording it normally paint themselves in a pretty favorable light. Every single character of Scripture, except for Jesus, is shown to be a flawed human being. That even those who recorded their own histories and testimonies record their own flaws and sins. We're talking about kings here who had every power to record history how they would choose to. 
and yet instead are recording their flaws. That testifies to me that it was God authoring Scripture rather than just people. Before, long before Godfather and Breaking Bad, the Bible pioneered you know, the kind of broken hero, the anti-hero. The third one is the explanatory power. Whether it's the, the case in Genesis that explains that the human condition is of both beauty and also brokenness, the idea that sin is our besetting issue and that God himself is the one who has the answer, that love is the thing that will put the universe back together, fits and explains so much of the human experience, of my own personal experience, of myself and of others. The Bible and its story has extreme explanatory power. It speaks to our hopes and dreams as well, to our fears and our worries as well as our hopes. But more than that, I've seen it spread across culture. There are times when I can read an ancient text and it feels like there's almost no distance between me and the person penning it. That their experience of God and his wonder and his goodness is the same even as I'm experiencing it now. Even this morning, watching the sunrise and reading a psalm, marveling at the works of God, it felt like I'm experiencing exactly what this person in a completely different cultural context, in a whole other language, in an entirely different epoch, was experiencing. But even as I've tra- and I haven't traveled far, I haven't, really haven't gone beyond the Pacific, but I've been to, I've been to Fiji a ton of times. To, sorry, that was not to the islands, like to the, the villages. We used to take youth over there to help sort of build houses and visit the orphanages and that sort of thing. Um, and I've been to Indonesia. And even in remote communities where our experience of growing up could not be more different, when we'd sit together in a Bible study and open the same Bible and see that God is working in the same way in their lives as in mine, there is a brotherhood and a sisterhood that comes about that really is hard to explain. And it testifies to the fact, I think, that this is the very word of God. But even above all of that, it's the person of Jesus. That Jesus himself came and suffered, and his claim is that he suffered on behalf of you and I, to love us and to bring us back to God. That he is someone who, in every way, displays moral goodness. And that the testimony of his, of his life and his teaching and his ministry is historically reliable. But more than that, it's inspiring. Someone who carried such authority that soldiers feared him and yet children felt safe to be around him. There is no person in history like Jesus who makes the claims that Jesus made. And so I wonder for you whether that's not enough to at least open the door to thinking more about the claims of Jesus. We're running something called Alpha in just three weeks' time on a Sunday or over lunch, so it should be a great time. But if you are in any way piqued by these questions, I encourage you to, to follow them all the way through to the bottom. Because there's no way around it. All of us have to have a worldview. The only question is whether or not it's coherent and it fits together. And I think there's good reason to believe that the Bible is what it says it is. And that its claims, though extraordinary, are true and worth investigating. And so I'm going to pray uh, that we might be a people who are asking hard questions but finding deep answers in the Bible before we reflect in song. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are a speaking God and that you speak to us through your word, the Bible. And I pray that for anyone here who is seeking or who is doubting, that they may knock and that you may answer, that you would reveal yourself as a God who is reliable, 
altogether morally good and whose words inspire us as we see your forgiveness, your grace and mercy toward us in Jesus and as we see what you are calling us to be in Christ. Father, we pray all of these things for the sake of your